Today, um, we are concluding a month-long look in the book of Daniel, one of those books that doesn't get probably enough attention, or maybe there's just a couple of verses that sometimes get referenced around Christmas time, and actually a couple of those verses will pop up in the chapter that we look at specifically today. Um, When you are reading through the book of Daniel, and that's one of the things that's been in common with all of the books in that have been included in the volume of, of Chronicles, is that they're all accounts of sort of from the fall of Israel and its time in captivity and all the things that come about from that. And we know that even in captivity, God has been doing his work and been leading his people, and they're in captivity because of their own choices, their own bad choices, and not just one bad choice, but repeatedly choosing the wrong thing over and over. But we've also seen God at work in some of the people that have been in these kingdoms that have been over the people of God. The first half of Daniel is kind of like a historical run-through, chapters 1 through 6, sort of a, the full sweep of what happened to Daniel while he was uh, in exile and rising to a place of prominence and actually serving under multiple kings and several different empires in that time. Babylon, and then Babylon gets conquered by uh, the Medes and the Persians, which are empires that were to the east of Babylon. And then eventually all of that gets taken over by the large sort of, I guess you'd, you'd call it the Persian Empire just kind of spreads the whole area. And eventually Persia will fall as well later on further down the line. But one of the things that comes up in the first six chapters of Daniel is that God is indeed sovereign overall and often has to show or prove in very dramatic ways to these kings who do not know him or at least who do not acknowledge his sovereign power over all the earth. Not just sovereign power over them, but how God continues to be at work in the life of his people even while they're in exile. Last week we saw how God rescued Daniel's friends from, where were they put? They were put into the giant furnace because once again the king got angry and so angry that he heated it up even more, seven times hotter, and it actually burned up the soldiers that brought his friends to put them in and then they survive. And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges the power of the God of Israel. He doesn't fully submit, though. And it takes a little bit more for Nebuchadnezzar to get the, I guess, get the story. In chapter 4, Daniel actually um, interprets another dream for the king, one where because of the king's pride, the king will actually go insane for a time a whole year. Now imagine you are the most powerful king in, in the world and then suddenly you have a psychotic break and you are making animal sounds and you are eating dust and you are tearing your clothes and this is in full view of everybody. 
You can imagine, or maybe you have a hard time imagining what that would be like. But God says, if you turn your face to me, I will restore all that you have. And Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, does do this. It says he turned his face to heaven. And he acknowledged that the Lord God Almighty is sovereign alone over all creation. We don't know exactly if anything else happened. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar dies. He ruled for 43 years. And others continued the line up through King Belshazzar, who co-reigned with his father for 14 years, until he had a dream as well. And his dream, when interpreted, is not a good interpretation. It was that he would be part of the collapse of the empire. Now imagine you are the leader or the ruler, and because of your own stupid choices, you hear the news that you alone will be responsible for the decline and fall of the Babylonian empire. Then we get to Daniel 7. That's the chapter we're going to look at today. Daniel chapter 7 is the beginning of a new kind of writing, a new kind or a new part of the book, and it recounts a dream that happened actually earlier chronologically. So once you hit chapter 7, we're not in chronological order anymore. We're basically kind of going back in time to all of the various dreams and visions that Daniel had while he was serving under these various kings. This collection of Daniel's visions is very similar in nature to things that you would read about like in in the book of Revelation. It's a kind of literature called apocalyptic literature, meaning there's a lot of images and stuff, and there's a couple of things that we have to understand as God's people if we are to read this faithfully. With this kind of imagery, these strong images that seem very fantastical, almost something like out of a movie, we need to remember that things are not always one-to-one, meaning this does not always equal that. And even if we're pretty sure that this means that, one thing that we've learned through the entire history of the church is that there are a wide range of interpretations. And if we truly knew what this equals that perfectly, then the church would already be in agreement. How's that working out? I don't think that I don't think when, we're, when we say church, we're talking about the global, worldwide church, the people of God today. We don't agree on hardly anything because we like to think that our interpretation is correct. Bible study. This is why there's a second part that's important for us: that when we arrive at our biblical interpretations, we do this together. The easiest way to get off track is to go it alone. Each of us are quite capable of doing that on our own. But in the church, it's always meant to be a communal thing, even if there are certain people that might be a little more versed in different things. There might be biblical scholars that have studied far more than you or me. But... Don't be alone. Well, there is, it's kind of an ironic thing. There is no true Lone Ranger Christian. You cannot be that and actually be a Christian. Christianity is always meant to be a collective, communal thing, the body of Christ. There's a reason Paul uses those images. 
It's not just about me and my opinion, even if I have a particular point of view. One of the things that I try to do when I'm seeking to interpret the Bible is that if I, have, if I come to a particular interpretation that I think is more correct, I try to hold it very lightly, recognizing that I could be wrong. Or at least I could be not completely right either. We do our best effort, and sometimes we try to take faithful steps to interpret the Bible. So let's acknowledge that each of us can bring something to the table, and that's one of the things we've done in Immerse. We've tried to share our particular sense of things so that together we can come to a greater sense of what God is doing, both then and in our day today. If you read chapter 7, you will be tempted to want to stop on every little detail. But rather than focus so much on what is every little detail of these four beasts, what we're going to do today is to pull back a bit so that we can go deeper. There's three questions, and I put them on the back of your bulletin. I have them up there on the screen as well. Three things to kind of, that I want you to keep in mind as we read through this chapter, or parts of it. Why does God reveal the dream like this? Maybe you're thinking of particular dreams that you've had. Why did God re- give that particular dream? Second, what purpose is God leading us towards in the story of this dream? There's a reason that this dream is included in the Bible. And third, and perhaps most important, what does this vision, and I'm kind of using the words vision and dream interchangeably, What does this reveal about God and the role of God's people? So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Daniel 7. You can put it up on your phone if you want to. I'm going to read, instead of putting all the words on the screen, I did put a few pictures that I was able to find. These are just from a a nice source that has a good variety of both adult sets of Um, Bible pictures, but also sets of pictures that go, that are more kid-friendly and accessible as well. So since our kids are out there, I went with the non-kid-friendly ones, or at least the ones that hopefully, uh, if they were in here, that might keep them up at night tonight from a few of those pictures. Let's, Let's read this first part. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts. Actually, I'll stop there. So, I mean, we live pretty close to the sea, so you can, you know, we might see some churning sea even tonight or tomorrow. Or there'll be some pictures of those wonderful waves. But imagine this is far more than that, you know. Imagine the worst hurricane you've ever, you could ever picture. Yeah, Jurassic Park apocalyptic type of thing. Verse 3, four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. Sounds kind of majestic. But if you've ever seen a lion in nature, they can be pretty aggressive. Now imagine a flying lion. 
you know. We're not talking to Aslan here, you know, nice Aslan. We're talking, yeah, aggressive, gonna pluck you, kill you, eat you, yeah, that kind of, yeah. I watched until its wings were torn off, so right away you know this is not a, this is not a uh, nice dream. And it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, one which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. Can you imagine a four, uh, a leopard with four wings and four heads? It's like Ghostbusters stuff. I still have visions of the original Ghostbusters with that one dog with two heads that always freaked me out. I can't remember what the name of it was, but I just remember seeing that at a young age. I'm like, that, that thing gave me nightmares for a long time. So a leopard with four heads and four wings. Yeah, not that. In an armchair was terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> I know. On its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. The beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. This is just one artist's interpretation. Imagine a stegosaurus, but not a, not a slow, lumbering kind of... Jurassic Park, nice Stegosaurus, one with terrifying teeth and proportions. Verse 8, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch. Because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Verse 12. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Let's stop there for a second. It's a rare picture of God in the Old Testament with human features. We, we tend to think of that more in the New Testament just because of the presence of Jesus and seeing God on his throne, or as the passage says, the ancient of days. 
And while we might be tempted to want to focus on the four beasts and wonder about all the nuances with those, I think the more powerful image to focus on is this image of God as the ancient of days. All the majestic images that your mind can think of put together. Those of you that are creative drawing types, this might be a good exercise for you to do to paint a picture of what does that look like or feel like to you. And I know I didn't give you much space on the back of your bulletin. That's why you always have the front, too, if you need more space to do those sorts of things. You know, I always debate about do I put something on the front or not, but um, sometimes those of you that uh, learn in that kind of drawing kind of way, that might be a good exercise. What does that um, phrase, the ancient of days, what does that look like or feel like to you? Now, all of these images come at a time, we have to remember, when God's remaining faithful people might have felt abandoned by him as they saw the way the world was working. They saw all these kingdoms and powers and principalities that seemed to have hold over them and want to keep them down. They saw the kings who ruled cruelly with iron fists, And so this was a scary and disturbing dream. But the good news is that the dream actually doesn't end here. You know how sometimes when you have a scary dream, you kind of wake up in a bolt in bed, and then the dream just sort of ends, and you're left very, like, in an unsettled state? Well, this dream actually continues. It keeps Daniel in an unsettled state, but it continues on. It doesn't end. And in this image, we see God taking away the power, ending their reign, for God alone is the sovereign Lord of all, the ancient of days. And then there's one final image coming on the clouds of the sky. Let me read verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, Son of man, by the way, this is a little bit different than when we read son of man in the New Testament. By the time the New Testament was written, son of man was sort of like almost became capital S, capital M, a phrase that Jesus applied to himself. Here it actually comes from an ancient Aramaic phrase that just means human being. So some sort of human looking form, which then Jesus interprets as himself later on. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you have this whole contrast with this final image that Jesus, no less than three times, but a whole bunch of times, applies this to himself when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Things like foxes have homes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And there's several other times. In fact, Son of Man shows up in the book of Revelation as well. 
These visions disturbed Daniel and they frightened him to his core. But the vision does not end here because this is where Daniel does a smart thing. I don't know how he does this in the dream, but he's given the ability to do this. He actually asks for help. He says, help me to understand, to interpret what this actually means. He says, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. That's probably the best thing he could have done in that moment. Sometimes I wish that we could do that in our dreams. Maybe we can, but I've never actually been awake enough or aware enough to try that out. Daniel asks to understand what he has seen. And while we're not going to go through the entire interpretation, because I think that can bog us down sometimes, we would do well to remember our earlier questions, those three questions. Why does God reveal the dream like this, do you think? And this is where I want to ask you that question. Why do you think God chooses to reveal the dream in this way? What do you mean by that, by in terms of... Why did God use all of these scary images... We know that he often speaks in dreams and visions. I was, Stacy and I were, I'm sorry, I'm confessing right now we were texting. Um, <laughs> it was on topic. It was on topic. I'm telling you, wrap me out, man. Well, no, I'm texting with, I'm texting with Rebecca, too, so there you go. Okay, so, I didn't get you mentioned Adam. Sorry, what you This is what our teens always say, too. Really, Mom? I, you can text me if you want. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Aslan earlier um, and said, you know, he wasn't nice like Aslan. And my immediate thought was, well, Aslan wasn't tame. And so when I think about that image of Aslan, has anybody, does anybody not know who Aslan is? Okay, good. Uh, no, this is no. a, a movie series, right? No, come on, come on. See, Aslan is from the Guardian. They're very good. Aslan books. is. The Chronicles. Yeah. Something that Kayla might enjoy too, if you're Ayla, interested. Yeah. Anyways, go ahead. Anyway, um, the book uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Series that reference Aslan. Okay. In that literature. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. Anyway, um, so Aslan was not tame, and as, they, as you know, as you're asking the question, why does God reveal the dream like this? I think, I mean, I don't know then if there was kind of a, a tame understanding of who God was or is, but I wonder. I wonder if he does all of those huge, dramatic, scary, powerful images to just underline how much more powerful and big God is. There are these horrific, horrific creatures and terrible power, and they're all subject to the sovereignty of God, who's bigger and more powerful. And I wonder if that's maybe... Definitely they're, they're scary images, but then... Also, images of God's own strength and power. Yeah. I'm going with her answer. Okay. <laughs> yes, okay. Rebecca is, agrees with Amy's summation. Yeah. Ezra. I, I think it makes sense if God wants uh, him to remember it, that it's very vivid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, putting those images that, that strike that sense of, of fear or of you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's even some imagery that I, it kind of reminds me of some of the pictures that are drawn up in uh, in the book of Job. You know, when he talks about, you know, the Leviathan and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And then basically, you know, it's calling to, yeah, like what Amy was saying, this is a very powerful thing that we have no control over that could 
you know, break us like twigs. And so God's so, so much more than that, yeah. So. And we can appreciate that, but I also think that in, that in this time for Daniel and for the other people of God scattered all over as they become aware of this, you know, if you are, if you have been for a very, for decades and decades under the oppressive thumb of the most powerful empire in the world, while scary images, they might be burned into your brain, they're also going to be a measure of hope in the sense, like you, you kind of need that, that, that hope to hold on to like, okay, a better day is, is coming. It totally takes me to the to conquests and, and people who are subjected to horrific, horrific things and the hope that is in there, the, 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 again, the horror of what they've experienced still is subject to God. It doesn't necessarily make it always better, but it does, it can give us a greater perspective. Well, it gives us something to look forward to, too. Yeah. Yeah. One more thing? Yeah. I find a lot of times um, Jesus and God the Father, whenever they're speaking to their people, when their people are afraid and they're scared and that kind of stuff, a lot of times the same, he does the same thing in some one way or another, which is zoom back out a little bit so you can see the context of what's happening. Whenever Jesus approached someone who has a, has a, a loved one that they lost, um, yeah. he's going he's gonna to resurrect somebody. He's like, why are you crying? But, <laughs> but he has that, that context that he can be understanding and, and sympathetic to people and at the same time know that it's, it's a lot, it looks a lot better when you have a, a farther back perspective. You know, showing us that compassionate loving side, but also being, yeah, like you said, being able to pull back and give us, give us the, the, the right or a, the bigger perspective or mindset to, to see things. Yeah. Our little beginner's Bible with the story of Lazarus today, Jesus' prayer. Father, I know you always hear me now. Show everyone that you have sent me. So it's not even just about bringing Lazarus back for Lazarus' sake and for Mary and Martha. It's show everyone why I'm here. Kind of under, I'm just underlining what yeah. Ezra already said. Cool. This is a little bit of what we're going to do next week as well. You know, kind of like what we did with our previous um, volume of Immerse. And we're, we're not going to go through all of the, the two other questions this morning because um, we're a little bit out of time. But there's, no, don't be sorry. There's a lot of things that we could say or continue to add to this. And I would encourage you to continue uh, your conversations in this. Um, there's just a couple of things that I listed on the back of your bulletin. Um, there's three little words you can fill in. I'll read a couple of verses as we, as we prepare to close. Things that can, I think, act as reminders for us. Especially when things seem heavy and hopeless. It's a reminder that God is always in control. Not just somewhat control, but complete control. Even when we don't think it. The first part of verse 14 says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. God is always in complete control. Yes, there are leaders, in this case kings, who are not filled with the glory of God, but filled with themselves. Sounds like today in many ways. 
And yes, there are leaders who abuse and misuse authority, and they will be judged harshly, but they also do not last forever. Collectively. It's when that one person says, well, I think it's got to be this. Sometimes it could be. But it's much better, you know, when we have this collective discernment. All who refuse to acknowledge the sovereign power of God will ultimately see what they try to hold on to come to nothing, be turned to dust, including themselves. Things will appear hopeless for a time, but God prevails against all earthly powers according to his own will in its approved time. Verse 21 says this, As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came, came when they possessed the kingdom. We are in the first fruits of that time even though the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. The last thing I'll say, the kingdom of God endures forever. We need that reminder all the time, especially when we're tempted to think that there's no possible way God can make a way forward. The kingdom of God endures forever. Verse 26 says, but the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. That's probably even the most important part, or the secondary part. And Daniel closes that chapter by saying, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Interesting. Sorry, sometimes prophecy is meant to wait. Mm -hmm. He was waiting for the right time. So you can see why some of the verses in this chapter are quoted in the New Testament. The truth of this prophecy was really not shown to be true until Jesus Christ came. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for this kingdom to unfold in the fullness of time, to rule here on earth as it is in heaven. We also are reminded that God in his grace has given this kingdom to his children to experience enjoy, and live under its complete authority. Friends, it might not feel like it always right now, but we actually live in the first fruits of this time. To be the ability to participate in this kingdom of God here on earth and to bring about this change to our world. This is just a taste, an appetizer of what is to come. We do know that the Lord alone is in control. The Lord alone will judge in mercy and truth at the appointed time. For the Lord rules an enduring kingdom for all time. All dominions will serve and become obedient to him. Yes, just as the song says, one day every knee will bow. 
And that, my friends, is a glorious image for us to hold on to. Let's pray this morning. God, thank you for the way that you speak. Sometimes you speak clearly. Sometimes you speak through dreams and visions. We thank you that you enabled Daniel to have not just the ability to understand, but to interpret in this way. And that you have chosen to reveal this aspect of who you are in Daniel 7. Lord, thank you for this glorious image of a kingdom that endures forever. It's one that boosts our confidence and can strengthen our faith and actually brighten our hope for tomorrow. All we can say is praise be to you, O God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This is the final word to Daniel. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. And for all who follow Jesus Christ and put their faith and trust in him, that is your word as well. So friends, go now in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.